0: From the ancient world, we have numerous stories of a usurper or an enemy who's destined to be vanquished by a yet unborn prince. And the version of this story, uh, best known in Asia Minor, that's where the seven churches that John is writing to are, The best-known version of the story there has the goddess Leto, pregnant with Apollo. Apollo is the son of Zeus. She's attacked by the dragon, Python, because Python knew that Leto's offspring was sent by Zeus to kill him. And so Leto, in the story, escapes the dragon and she's carried to safety. And Apollo was born. And Apollo finds the dragon, slays the dragon. It's a fairly common ancient motif. And John gives us, in this text this morning from Revelation 12, the New Testament lesson which was just read, he gives us the story which is both prior to and the true fulfillment of these ancient pagan myths. And we'll look at it under four headings, they're there in your bulletin. The woman in heaven, the dragon, the child, and the woman in the wilderness. So first, the woman in heaven. John has seen heaven opened at the end of the last chapter, chapter 11. And what he does here is he backs up in time... And he sees another great sign in heaven. Notice, this is one of the many indications that the book is not in chronological order. The events in this text this morning are prior even to the existence of the churches in Asia Minor. And they're signs. John has told us the whole book is a system of signs, and we have to interpret them as signs or symbols. John sees a great sign in heaven. He sees a woman clothed with the sun. And she has the moon under her feet and on her head she has a crown of 12 stars. Now the main backdrop here is from Genesis 37. You might remember back in the book of Genesis, Joseph has a dream. And in his dream... He sees the sun, representing Jacob, and the moon, representing Rachel, and he sees 11 stars, representing the patriarchs, bowing down to him, Joseph, and Joseph would be the 12th star, and there it's quite clear that the image represents the nation of Israel, And thus the image here in our text is a picture of the faithful covenant community of the Old Testament. She's radiant because of her heavenly origin and her heavenly destiny. Isaiah 60 speaks of Israel as clothed in a kind of heavenly glory and splendor. And John sees her this way. He sees Israel this way despite her fragile and her uncertain earthly existence. She's beautiful and radiant. And she's crowned. Because she shares in the kingship of the Lord God. And so in verse 2, we're told here that she was pregnant, and was crying out in pains, birth pains, as she was about to give birth. And this... As the rest of the text will show, this does not refer to Mary, except indirectly, in that Mary is an outstanding member of the covenant community. John's concern here is corporate. It's with the whole. This is an image of Israel as a whole in labor, through her long historical agony and suffering. It's the agony of her persecution. It's the agony of warfare against the Messianic line. It's the agony of Israel which is depicted in Isaiah and in Micah and in other places as as Israel being pregnant, laboring to give birth to the Messiah. Israel's ordeal, Israel's history as the chosen people of God is really a shocking and startling thing. It's one harrowing ordeal after another. She suffers, if you will, in her role as elect. And so this picture of Israel laboring to give birth to the Messiah, it goes all the way back to the promise made to Eve that her seed would crush the seed of the serpent, but only after a period where God imposed enmity, that is, hostility, warfare, There's a kind of hostility that Israel faces. You see it in her history in the conflict between Cain and Abel, between Ishmael and Isaac, between Esau and Jacob, between Edom and Israel, between Saul and David, between Israel and the nations. On and on it goes. Israel's in labor. She's pregnant, striving to bring forth the Messiah into the world. And so the woman here then is, as Paul calls her, the pure and holy Jerusalem from above. She's the mother, not only of Christ, but of all the faithful. Here, the faithful in their Old Testament form. So that's the woman. And you can see, by the way, in going back to Israel's history, John has gone back before the beginning of the text, right? Before the birth of Christ. The text has wrapped way back in time. In fact, what John is doing in chapters 12, 13, and 14 is giving you the whole book in miniature with a big, long backstory. So 12, 13, and 14 are, again, kind of a long, dramatic pause and retelling of the story, only pierces back to the beginning. It's as if John is saying, "Okay, I've given you a lot, seven seals, seven trumpets, lots of signs, lots of depictions of the end. I want to go back and explain how the world got into this situation. So he goes back in Israel's history and he depicts her pregnant and struggling. And then the second point is the dragon. In verse 3, he sees another sign in heaven. He doesn't see a literal dragon in heaven. He sees a sign, a dragon as a sign of something. He sees a great red dragon. In the Old Testament, dragons were associated with these... um, Evil sea monsters. In particular, with one called Leviathan. And Leviathan in ancient mythology had seven heads, like this dragon. And these creatures, fantastic creatures in many ways, they are symbolic of evil kingdoms, usually kingdoms like Egypt. And this dragon is red. And he's red because he's bloody. And murderous. And he's going to inspire a beast, the Roman beast, later described as scarlet. And his seven heads and ten horns represent fullness or completeness or worldwide extent of of his power, this dragon's power, which is usurped power. You might remember all the way back in chapter 5, we saw Jesus, the slain lamb in heaven. He had seven horns. They spoke of his power. And so John is saying there's a dragon, there's a power arrayed with deadly force of his own against the lamb. We often forget this. The story of the world is the story of spiritual warfare, of cosmic warfare. We're modern, scientific people, and we tend to shy away from this, or perhaps shrink back from it. At least some in the Presbyterian tradition are just a little queasy about this. But John is saying, I want to give you not only the back story of human history, I want to give you the unseen story of human history. And so this is the way he sees the world. For us, we think of apocalyptic images like this are they're either purely fantastic or they belong in the movies or they're purely futuristic. But what saves this kind of stuff in the book of Revelation from that sort of irrelevance is that this stuff we know is impinging in history upon the churches in Asia Minor and upon us now and then. John does not think that these are the symbols of a fantastic future. So, this dragon has seven crowns on these seven heads. That means he has kingly representatives. He has earthly representatives. The demonic principalities and powers manifest themselves in states and in earthly representatives and in kings and in thrones. And those kings and thrones, they make blasphemous claims. This stands for the false sovereignty of Rome over against what John will later tell us are the many, many diadems which are on the head of Christ when he appears. Now, having said all that, nonetheless the dragon is not an evil kingdom per se. Verse 9 in the text makes it clear, it's a little after our text today, but it makes it clear that he's the ancient serpent. He's the one who's called the devil and Satan. He's the deceiver of the whole world. And so again, John is saying that the church in her conflict with Rome, in her conflict with all ungodly empires, is ultimately up against spiritual forces. Never purely political forces, or even purely cultural forces. But spiritual forces of wickedness, principalities, powers, deranged forces. And thus, again, the church is reminded to compromise with this beast of an empire is to compromise with Satan himself. We cannot eliminate this stuff as just purely fantastic without doing some kind of real damage to the faith, because the faith is, this kind of apocalyptic imagery is built into the nature of the Christian faith. Because, remember, what we believe is we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means we believe in a kind of judgment on the, coming or, on the current order, on ourselves and on the current order of things, and the need for a cosmic new creation that is resurrection. So this sort of imagery of warfare and conquest is basic to the faith and it cannot be stripped out without leaving us with something thinner. A kind of Christian moralism. Apocalyptic is basic for people who believe in the resurrection. So, in the beginning of verse 4, the dragon's tail sweeps a third of the stars from heaven or from the sky down to earth. This is not the ancient fall of the demons, This is Satan himself is doing the damage here. He's not being himself cast out, though that will happen later. The stars here are related to the stars on the woman's head, which represent the Israel of God. So this imagery again refers to a satanic assault on Israel as she seeks to bring forth the Messiah. The saints shine like stars. And so the big picture here is pretty clear. Satan assaults heaven itself and thus the heavenly people as they seek to give birth to the Messiah. That's Israel's history in two or three sentences. And in the second half of verse 4, the dragon, the satanic powers, stands before the woman who is about to give birth so that when she bore her child, the text says, he might devour it. In this way, right, by killing the Messiah, he seeks to complete his assault, on the which he began by assaulting the stars, the Old Testament saints, but he wants to devour and slay the Messiah. And so this is the warfare of the ages, unmasked to its lethal core. Satan and his agents seek the destruction of the Messiah and his people. This is played out throughout history. It's played out prominently later in the Gospels when Herod, an underling of the bestial Roman state, attacks the infant males in Bethlehem. That's the same story that John is telling here in apocalyptic language, just put into the prose of the Gospels. This drama is played out in the wilderness temptations of Jesus in his whole life and his ministry is death, where he faces down the awful onslaught of the dragon's powers. It's played out in the history of the church's martyrs. It happens here. The scene takes place in the text here in heaven, not because Jesus was born in heaven, but that we might have through John a heavenly perspective on the nature of this warfare. Remember, one of John's great purposes, you could miss a lot about the book of Revelation, a lot about what the symbols mean or exactly how to connect everything, and still benefit from it greatly if you realize that one of the things John is doing is he's trying to give you a new way of seeing. Right? He wants you to see apocalyptically in faith behind the purely historical. That's why John is always saying, to, to churches on the ground in Asia Minor, just grinding out life. He's saying, And I saw a dragon in heaven. Or I saw this in heaven, and heaven was opened. He wants them to see from the top down, not from the bottom up. So the third point's the child. In verse 5, the woman gives birth to the child, the male child. This is the true prince who will slay the dragon, the one who's destined to rule the nations with an iron scepter. This rule of this child has already begun. It started in the first appearance of Christ, and it's completed when Christ appears a second time at the end of the age to assert his rule finally. Jesus reigns, he is reigning, and he shall reign. So the end of verse 5 indicates that the dragon crouching, lying in wait, is thwarted. He wants to slaughter the Messiah. He's thwarted in his murderous plot. The text says the child's caught up to God and to his throne. This is a reference to Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. So John takes the whole life of Jesus, his birth, His death, his resurrection, his ascension, and he sort of telescopes it, shrinks it down into one verse. This is because John wants to highlight the triumph, the victory, the ascension to the throne. This child, Jesus, our Savior, withstands the serpent, the dragon that Adam succumbed to. He is not devoured. He obeys where Israel disobeyed. That's what the wilderness temptations of Jesus are about. Jesus is the new Israel. He has to resist the satanic dragon that Israel failed to resist, that Adam failed to resist. He defeats the dragon and he's caught up to his throne. He he assumes his reign. Thus and only thus is there hope for us, hope for the saints. The totality of our hope rests not in ourselves. But in Christ's perfect obedience, his resistance where we have capitulated, his obedience where we have sinned, his fidelity where we have been deceitful, his purity where we are impure, his exacting obedience in the teeth of the dragon. That is what we mean when we say his righteousness becomes ours by faith. And that is the hope of the gospel. That's the hope of the church. And John is sort of telling us this in a symbolic and compacted way, but in a very dramatic way to stir us up. And this brings us to the final point the woman in the wilderness. Verse 6 the woman fled into the wilderness or to the desert. So the woman, by the way, is now depicted no longer in heaven, but on earth, fleeing into the wilderness. And so here we've moved from seeing the woman as faithful Israel and we should see her now as the faithful New Testament community. After all, the birth and the death and the ascension of Christ has intervened in the text. She is Israel laboring to give birth. She gives birth to the Messiah and she flees into the wilderness. She flees from the dragon who we will see next week has been expelled from heaven to earth. So what is this wilderness? This is one of the most important um, features of the New Testament teaching on the church. The wilderness is a metaphor for where the church lives before the end, throughout her history. As Israel in the wilderness sought to enter the promised land of Canaan, so the church wanders. She's subject to satanic assault. The dragon's going to chase her down in the next text. The same dragon that wanted to slay Jesus wants to slay you. And the church wanders in her wilderness looking for the coming city of God. Think about what this wilderness symbol means for the way we think about life. Think about the community. Think of the church. It means... That here we have no lasting city. This is basic to the church's life. She is a pilgrim people. We are strangers. We are aliens. We are wilderness wanderers. We have no permanent home. We are not yet in Canaan. The church exists in the wilderness and subject to satanic oppression. This strips her, by the way, from dependency on all powers, earthly powers, and it also delivers her from the need to be endorsing earthly powers, left or right or anywhere else. So this wilderness, the text continues, it says that she has a place there prepared by God in which she's to be taken care of or nourished. So the wilderness is a place of, of alien wandering, it's a place of assault and temptation, but notice it's also a place of divinely prepared safety and protection. Now that sounds a lot like your life, does it not? We're, we're, we're aliens, we're strangers, our lives are fragile, they're precarious. They're difficult, but God takes care of us. He does. He he protects the woman. He nourishes the woman. He sets up a table for you. But before the end, the table is always in the presence of our enemies. That's a wonderful way of putting this. The church is in the wilderness. She's in the presence of the satanic dragon who's chasing her down. But God sets up a table for her in the presence of your enemies. God is probably not going to remove a lot of your enemies in life, whether they're interior enemies or exterior enemies. But He is going to nourish, protect, provide, and set up a table for you in the wilderness of your existence. And so the, church, the church's reality, her existence is assured. She's protected through Christ's prior protection and triumph. It's a reminder that all the promises are yea and amen in Christ. There really is no promise in Scripture that you can directly claim. You, You claim Jesus Christ and all the promises are fulfilled in Him. Every one of them. And finally, she said to be nourished for 1,260 days and we've already seen and argued that this refers to the whole time of the church's sojourn, that number. And that's strengthened here, by the way, because 1260 days is the time of the church's time in the wilderness. If you read Hebrews 3 and 4, you will see that the whole history of the church is the time of the church's time in the wilderness. How long is the church in the wilderness before she enters the, the, the new heavens and the new earth? Her whole history. How long is the church subject to the, the assaults and the attacks and the deceit of the dragon? Her whole history. So what does 1260 days refer to? Her whole history. And so John has, in a very unique way, brought us to the heart of what is going on in human history. And so we need to be warned by a text like this. John is saying something like this to the churches in Asia Minor. Be warned, you need to know what you are up against. Yes, it looks like just a local official who's asking you to burn some incense to Caesar. It looks like it's just a trade guild leader who's saying you can't work for the trade guild unless you uh, make this confession of faith in Caesar or one of his delegates. It looks just like a local priestess who's asking you for a minor compromise on the faith. John says, if you see it that way, you haven't pierced behind the scenes. Now again, this is not a license to find great satanic conspiracies in everything we don't like in life. That's the danger with these sorts of texts. But it is also a wake-up call. John is piercing beyond the veil of the visible, stealing the seven churches in Asia Minor. He's saying to them, look, there are principalities and powers that have real lethal force in history. And we will soon see that they have numberless victims. These beasts trample down the saints. They kill them. And they are killing them. They're killing them in Nigeria. They're killing them in the Sudan. They're killing them in Iraq. And they're killing them in Syria. And a half a dozen other places. The gospel, John says, consists in this. Here's the good news. Christ is not among the victims. He is not devoured. He has slain this dragon. He has been caught up to the throne of God. And thus in his defeat of the dragon, he goes to the root of all these bestial empires and their power. He's crushed According to the ancient promise, the serpent's head. And thus, the church, as we sang this morning, the church with her dear Lord to defend and nourish, shall never perish. And that's the good news for us. Every promise of Scripture is yes for you in Jesus Christ, in the extremities of the wilderness. In our weakness and in our powerlessness, we are nourished and we are kept. You are the woman in the wilderness. And that means you're clothed with the sun and destined to be caught up to the same throne of God. Amen.